This is the Comp Effect Podcast. When you focus on workers' compensation, you'll have a safer work environment, more productive staff, lower expenses, and you'll crush your competition. We're sharing real-world stories, actionable tips, business-friendly advice, and information to help your business. I'm your host, Todd Tams. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, listeners, to the Comp Effect Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to bring to you Don and Bree Dunn of the R&D Agency. Don is president and CEO of the R&D Agency, which is an investigative agency located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And one of the cool things is their primary focus area is workers' compensation fraud. Don has been investigating work comp fraud for over four decades and is a wealth of knowledge. And what's even cooler is today it's a family business as his daughter, Bree, also joins us for today's podcast. And she also joined the family business. Was it about two years ago, Bree? Yep. Well, I'm super excited to have you guys on. I think uh, I think the conversation, the topics we're going to talk about today is going to be fantastic. And I think there's a lot of mystery surrounding what exactly happens in maybe a fraud investigation and uh, what businesses or business owners can do in a fraud investigation and what leads insurance companies to pursue fraud. So I just want to thank you both again for being on the podcast today. So let's, uh, let's get into it. Don Bree, why don't you guys tell me a little bit about yourself and about your business and what's going on up in Minneapolis right now? Okay, sure. I'll start. Um, so like you mentioned, I've been doing this most of my life. I actually got into the PI business when I was 19. I started, uh, got a job at a law firm. I got trained as a legal secretary. Uh, we happened to have an in-house investigator there at the time, Rick Daniels. He uh, was only in his 30s, I think, at the time, but he had a career already as a highway uh, motorcycle cop in California, uh, Marine Corps before that, and then he'd been with the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension before he joined this law firm. So he had a great deal of experience, uh, took me under his wing, and I started working some of the investigative stuff with him. Um, that was in 1979. I was uh, 19 years old at the time. Yeah. And then um, by 84, I started working for a company here in the Twin Cities that did a great deal of insurance fraud, mostly work comp, work, surveillance. So I kind of started learning the ropes of surveillance, doing surveillance every day, um, perfecting hidden cameras with uh, another employee who would become my business partner years later. And uh, we just had fun with it. I mean, it's it's a fun, exciting way to spend your days when there's activity. It can be really boring too when there's nothing going on, but we try to focus on the positives. Um, spent a lot of time working on cameras, getting smaller cameras, cameras that you didn't have to hold, um, working on approaches to generate information. We used a lot of pretexts uh, to generate information without tipping people off to what we were doing. Um, so back in the day, and, uh, doing surveillance, was it like the big old, what I'm trying to remember, the big VHS cam, I mean, the monster things you'd put on your shoulder and you'd try and hide those? Yeah, it was. It, it was just a few years removed from the reel-to-reel camera, so that would have been even worse. But yeah, there was nothing portable about them. Uh, even the batteries were about this big. Uh, so 
coming up with hidden cameras back then was pretty problematic. I remember the first hands-free camera we had took two people to operate. One guy to wear it on his back with a with a uh, camera in his pocket, and the other guy to kind of distract from all that that was going on over there and do most of the talking. Um, and now, obviously, I, mean, I, I could have five cameras on me right now, and, and you probably wouldn't see any of them. So that part of things has certainly improved quite a bit. So back in the day, was it like the big white cargo van, you know, with the Bob's plumbing on the side or something that you were staked out in all day long with those big, is, that's what I'm picturing right now back in the day. Were yeah, you- it was, uh, it was all full-size conversion vans back then. No turning radius. They're spacious. Yeah, they had that going for them, but not great in the winter. Um, not all that inconspicuous. Um, but, you know, it worked well for surveillance. And then we got into the minivans. Now, most of us use SUVs. They're a little more inconspicuous, better in the winter. Um, we'll use a variety of different vehicles, but you've got to use something you can conceal yourself in. It does no good to do surveillance out of a front seat of a Ford Taurus, for example, unless you want everyone to know you're there. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that's probably not, I mean, secrecy and is, is the key to probably a successful fraud investigation, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. We like to stay discreet. So when you're doing, so it, it was 1991, then the year that Bree was born that uh, we formed R and D agency and now we're celebrating our 30th year. So it's been a fun run. Well, welcome. I'm sure you're excited to be back in the business now too, Bree, second generation. Yeah, it's been really fun. It's been fun growing up and watching it evolve um, from going to work with him on Take Your Daughter to Work Day to now being down the hall from him in my own office. It's definitely been a fun transition, fun journey. Well, and you bring you bring kind of a unique experience with your with your background in the health insurance industry. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a different, um, different career path. I spent the first seven years of my career post-college um, as an employee benefits consultant. I traveled around and did open enrollment meetings, and I was really um, an employee advocate and there to help communicate their benefits and, and make sure that employee engagement, engagement was high for our clients. Um, now we work kind of behind the scenes with the employers, and we're we're more or less trying to weed out when the employees are not all that engaged, when they're um, malingering an injury or dragging things on and taking advantage of that employer relationship. So it's it's definitely opposite sides of the spectrum, but I think it's all connected. I'm still working with the same HR directors and risk managers, just from um, a little bit of a different standpoint than the employee benefits background. So what's when you when you join the the family business, what's the what's the training program look like? I mean, I'm guessing there's no there's not a college course where you want to be a private eye or especially a private eye that trains his people in how to investigate workers' comp fraud. What's that look like for you? Right. So there is not a college degree for private investigation, at least that I'm aware of in Minnesota. Um, but there are certain certain requirements that have to be met. I had to take a couple of different courses on ethics and understand what we legally can and can't do as private investigators. Um, The licensing is a little bit different from one state to the next. 
in Minnesota. Um, my dad owns the corporate license and all of us investigators operate underneath that. So there's requirements that we have to do to maintain um, our ability to operate underneath that corporate license. But a lot of it is really hands-on training. It's, it's going out in the field. It's working up the preliminary reports to figure out how to track down different leads. It's thinking outside of the box and being able to think on your feet. Um, if you lose your claimant while you're conducting surveillance, where might they have gone? Do you have other addresses you could check nearby? Are there other businesses or healthcare facilities nearby that they might have gone to? So um, it's unlike any other training program that I'm really aware of, but um, just learning from the other investigators here at R&D Agency, you get so much from them and, and from their experience, my dad included. Yeah, I guess it's probably a little, I mean, you're, you're trying to be sneaky, right? Right. It goes against how most people normally are during their normal day. I'm pretty conspicuous wherever I go and to try and hide. I don't know that I would do a very, I'm six foot five. I, I stay. <laughs> a little bit harder for you to hide. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Bree's always been a little sneaky though. Sneaky, sneaky, but a terrible liar. So that, that doesn't make, <laughs> that doesn't make for the best investigator, but but I do mostly sales and marketing, so I'm not, not necessarily in the field all the time like the um, field investigators are. I'm helping with some of the preliminary workup where we're building that profile on the individual, confirming vehicles, um, hobbies, looking at social media, all of that information that we then give to our investigators who go out in the field and are actually um, tracking the claimants and the individuals. We want them to have all the tools at their disposal to be successful once they're actually out there. So, uh, ahead, Todd, Doc. you asked about the training. I'll just I'll just input briefly that Minnesota changed their training requirements several years ago, and we came up with some of our own courses that had to be certified through the state. Um, so there's a 12-hour pre-assignment course I have to get all my investigators through, uh, and there's also ongoing training that we do here. So we've designed courses that focus on, as Bree said, privacy, ethics, uh, the laws regarding investigators and what we can and can't do, um, just kind of camera techniques in general, uh, a bunch on surveillance, uh, some public record stuff. There's a variety of different courses that we've developed in-house that we continue to upgrade. So that's when I bring field investigators in, I have to get them through those courses to begin with get them working under my license. And then we have continuing ongoing training from there. That's a great program. What, I guess I'm not familiar. What are some of the things that you are legally and not legally allowed to do? Well, for the most part, because we're licensed and assuming we're working on a legitimate investigation, we're exempt from stalking laws, first of all. So um, one of, you know, one of the things that we hear often is an employer is thinking about doing their own surveillance, bad idea. Um, they can be charged with stalking, um, not to mention that the claimant they're following around probably would recognize them if they saw them up close. But um, so uh, as long as we maintain the license and the insurance and bond and things like that, and we we're performing our duties legally, we're exempt from those laws. There are certain things, you know, I, I brought up pretext and pretext it might be an ugly word in the industry, but it's an essential part of generating information. Many times you don't want to be going up front with somebody to, 
to learn some information that you're gathering because you know it's going to get right back to the guy that you're investigating. So pretext is a perfectly legal method. Law enforcement uses it as well, but there are restrictions. We, for example, can't say that we're law enforcement. Uh, we can't say that we represent a city or county or government agency of any kind. And we can't say that we're with a recognizable corporation. So, you know, if we're using a pretext, we have to keep those things in mind. Okay. So when you talk about stalking laws, if, if an employer wants to hire your firm to maybe do a fraud or to do an investigation, does that have to be signed off by a third party or can that business hire you and you're exempt from the stalking laws? Yeah, the business can hire us, and that happens fairly often if their carrier isn't isn't willing to put the money up to do a proper investigation. The employer uh, feels there's something there. Uh, they have every right to hire us directly. Uh, many of our clients are self-insured on their work comp, so they're much more actively involved. There's going to be a third-party administrator involved as well, probably paying the bills or uh, at least involved in some capacity. So... Um, yeah, they can, they can certainly get involved. What we try to avoid is, is the private party, the cheating spouses and that sort of thing. You see it a lot on TV. I'm sure there's a lot of PIs that make their living out of it. We just avoid that stuff. I'd hate to be in the middle of that whole private cheating. Yeah. It's messy. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. It sounds real messy. Sounds real messy. So let's, can, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into workers' compensation fraud investigation. I'm guessing that's, I mean, that's not a path most people sign up for. No. Well, as I told you before, I started my career early, wasn't really making enough money to survive on. So I ended up going back to a very large law firm for a couple of years, uh, downtown Minneapolis. And in 1984, I saw an ad for a field investigator. It was a local company, fairly well established at the time. And um, I got hired there uh, they actually hired two of us, figuring one of us would flame out and not make it because there's kind of a high percentage of guys that just aren't really cut out for it. Um, as it turned out, we both made it. And uh, so I started in 84 doing pretty much surveillance every day, either on work comp claims or slip and fall, auto accidents. You know, they're all handled very similar. Um, I spent the next seven years doing that. And um, that kind of got me into this fairly small community, really, when you think about it, defense attorneys, adjusters, uh, employers, those that are involved in it as a kind of a small community. So once you get your name out there and hopefully you do good work consistently, you get to have a bit of a following and, and some people that have faith in you. And so when we started R&D in 91, you know, we had a bit of a, a positive reputation out there. It made it a little bit easier to jumpstart the business. And then from there, we just kept working on having some consistent um, results, fine-tuning how we did things so that our chances of success were better, I think. And that, over time, has resulted in just, I think, a good reputation in the industry and a pretty steady flow of existing and new customers coming to us. Wonderful. I think that's just proof of, you know, what we do matters, what you do matters. Uh, I would like to believe, and I'm a huge advocate of let's take care of the injured worker and get them back to work and make sure that 
we can put them back together if it's a severe injury as best as possible. But that's not what we're talking about here when it comes to these fraud investigation claims. There's something that has given the employer or the insurance company pause. There's some red flags. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about maybe what some of those red flags are that immediately would turn into uh, the insurance company or the business owner saying, hey, we should really look at this, this case. We think it might be fraud. Um, I'm assuming it's a high dollar claim. And there's certainly a pay for to bring you out there and bring your team out there to prove it's fraud. Yeah, I can handle that. Um, some of the red flags that I think will get employers or adjusters interested in potentially pursuing investigation would be an injury where there's no witness. Um, maybe there's a delay in reporting the injury. Um, the employee was a short-term employee or on some sort of performance plan um, under dis disciplinary action before um, having difficulty getting in touch with the employee, also having a hard time tracking them down. Obviously, anytime it gets to the point where there's rumors circulating within the employer or somebody says, hey, I saw Jimmy playing baseball last weekend or heard that he's feeling just fine, saw that he's working construction on the side. By the time it gets to that point and there's rumors, they're, they're highly motivated to seek surveillance and investigation, but there's a number of different factors that lead employers and adjusters to think it's a good candidate for surveillance. All those things you just said are things that I hate to hear when there's a claim. Why isn't it reported? Why is there no witnesses? Why isn't there daily mandatory reporting or even instant reporting? I know OSHA's, you know, OSHA has shied away from telling employers that there needs to be a mandatory reporting policy, but it's certainly welcomed and encouraged, especially on a Friday afternoon, because we've all seen those Monday morning claims that there was, there was no witness on Friday. We don't know what happened over the weekend. Now it's the insurance company on the hook come Monday and there's nothing to refute that. Yep. A lot of injuries happen right before deer hunting opener too. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would also add, um, in our experience, there's certain injuries that are harder to prove. So soft tissue injuries, um, brain injuries, traumatic brain injuries, things like that. It's less cut and dry. So when that tends to be the circumstance and it's coupled with several of those other red flags, that's another, um, that's another indication that it might be something worth pursuing investigation. You see an investigation when the claim reaches a certain dollar threshold, like maybe if it's twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars, the insurance company may not fight it because it's not worth it. But when you get into, I mean, is there a limit there that where you see there's they they take a closer look? I think a lot of that we're not really privy to. They're having their conversations on their own. Uh, certainly, if the claimant is young and has a lot of productive years ahead of them and their uh, injury can potentially uh, be permanent or uh, a high percentage of um, permanent disability. I mean, they're doing the numbers before they think about reaching out to us. And if their exposure is high, um, and especially if the documentation isn't there, it's, it's questionable. One doctor saying this, another one seeing nothing. I think all those those calculations are going into it before they tend to reach out to us. Okay. But certainly the higher the exposure, the younger the claimant, the more the potential um, cost to them at the end. 
um, the more likely it is they're going to give an agency like us a call. What I'm hearing you say too is that a lot of the fraud or maybe that initial bad feeling sounds like it's communicated directly from the business at that point in time. I mean, there's obviously, hey, the, the claim was reported late. They're on a disciplinary action plan. All of that needs to be communicated to the insurance company so that then they can get people like you guys involved. And if people don't say anything, then the claim probably goes through without any hitch at all. Yeah. And in some cases, it may be the adjuster that just they can't get cooperation. The claimant never answers the phone. They can't even get that initial intake figured out. But yeah, usually it's the employer that's kind of pushing things along. Doesn't There was an unreported, I mean, unwitnessed injury, whatever it might be. Uh, and it depended on the size of the employer, too. If they've got a, a high deductible, they're paying much of the cost. They have a little more sway in what's going to get done next. What uh, Walk me through what an investigation looks like, beginning to end. What, uh, what are you asking for from the business owner? What steps are you going to take? What's that, how does that unfold? Okay. Um, well, I would say, you know, we want to know as much as we can about the injury, the restrictions, and the claimant themselves. Um, usually we're getting that from the adjuster, sometimes an attorney. Um, if they're comfortable with us talking to the employer, we'd like to do that too, because we want to get tapped into the rumor mill to a certain extent. Uh, maybe they've got an employee photo. Maybe the employee is still showing up for some kind of light duty work, and we want to get a upcoming work schedule. Um, so if we're able to deal with the employer, that's always helpful. But that initial intake process is important. And from there, we're going to assemble a profile of the claimant, confirm where they live. Nobody likes us to start at the provided address when they don't live there anymore. So we try to eliminate those kind of snafus right from the get-go. Um, where they live, what they drive, who lives with them, kind of hobbies and activities they're involved in, if they're hunters and fishermen, uh, snowmobilers, boaters. Uh, we look at a variety of things, including courts and social media. Um, and what we're doing is we're assembling a profile so we know as much as we can about that person before we even leave the office. It, it allows my investigators to, um, to have a much better idea of who it is they're, they're looking at, what the setup looks like, because we're looking at aerial views of the location, escape routes, things like that. Um, and, uh, and we also look at when, when they get benefits. If they're getting paid on a Friday, people tend to be more active when they've got money in their pockets. So we try to establish as much as that as we can. Um, and then from there on, usually there's a, you know, I wouldn't recommend that any investigation start without at least committing to a couple of days of surveillance. We've had cases that have gone over 100 days of surveillance over a period of time. And there's a good reason for doing that in many cases, but there's really not a good reason for initiating an investigation and only doing a day or a partial day of surveillance. You may get lucky and get activity, but there's really no pattern there. It's not going to sway a judge or even a doctor to change the restrictions. So you really need to commit to doing uh, at least a couple of days to show a pattern and be prepared to do more after that. So once the profile is done, we'll assign it out for investigation, for surveillance to one of the field investigators. Um, they're going to be updating the client verbally, 
they send in their updates with still photos from the video that they're taking to incorporate into the report. And then we're sharing those from the office to the, uh, to the adjuster and attorney, whoever else is involved. So there's ongoing communication on a couple of different fronts. So will an investigation today, is it kind of like it was back in the seventies and eighties? I mean, sitting in a suburban out front with a camera, is it following them around? Is it drive-bys? What does that look like? Really depends on the factors that you've got going for you, the, the setup at the house. Um, but yeah, in many ways, it's very much the same as it was back in the 70s and 80s. You establish a good position where hopefully you can see if there's activity on the property. And also, if someone comes to pick the claimant up, if you're set up outside the neighborhood waiting for their vehicle, and they either go the other way or they get picked up, you just wasted the day. So if possible, you want to set up with a good view. Um, in many cases, you're just going to stay there. Activities going on, and they're building a, a deck. Uh, you're just going to shoot film of it and stay there as long as you can until the activity stops. Obviously, when they leave, now you're going into mobile surveillance. Um, you know, and that has its, its own set of challenges, as you can imagine, because it's not just you and the claimant. You've got all these other factors to deal with traffic control devices and other vehicles, uh, suspicion maybe on the claimant's part. Uh, obviously, we don't know where they're going. They do. So you've got to be discreet, uh, but you've also got to do all you can to stay on them because wherever they're going, there may be more activity going there, and you need to get them there to be able to document that. So what happens when it's no longer discreet? I'm trying to picture of you know, maybe a stakeout at a farmhouse or, I mean, something where it's so isolated that it's hard to get out there or you're, you're readily visible no matter what you do. Yeah. I mean, well, um, you're kind of in harm's way. You might have an antagonistic playing person and it gets real scary real fast. Right. And that's part of the thing that we like about it. The adrenaline rush. Um, you know, there's been cases where we've been confronted, whether it's the claimant or a nosy neighbor, uh, Somebody calls the police on us and we have to deal with that. So you have to be able to think on your feet. Uh, we're not really under any obligation to tell anybody why we're there. So in some cases, we're just coming up with a story that makes sense uh, to get out of there and live to fight another day. Um, just because we've got a claimant that's suspicious, and that happens every now and then, we try to look out for the signs. They're looking in the rearview mirror a lot. They're pulling over. They're making unexplained turns. And we always look at it like we're better off letting them go, give it a little time to cool off, get somebody else out there in a different vehicle, and try it again. Um, I can remember a case just a few years ago, a uh, law enforcement officer for a large county, and uh, uh, this claimant happened to be working out on probably a third or fourth day of surveillance. And I think... She had maybe picked up on surveillance before that and then was suspicious of the investigator. But word got through to the client and we said, all right, we're going to back off. We backed off for a little bit and we got back on her with different investigators, different vehicles and spent about another 60 or 65 days on surveillance without her ever catching on. And everyone assumes that law enforcement people are just super aware of their surroundings. Well, I can tell you that's not always the case. So, I mean, that's, that's 
a rare example. We've had cases that have gone over 100 days of surveillance, but they're they're pretty rare. But to answer your question, yes, sometimes sometimes you've got to be invisible. Maybe you're going to be in camouflage out outdoors. Maybe you're going to be hiding in plain sight with a, a rotating uh, orange beacon on the top of your vehicle. Uh, so we try to use some different techniques. Sometimes we'll use a stationary camera to watch the house or the exit, and we're half a mile away watching the feed, and now we know when they're leaving, now we can follow them. So it really depends on a lot of different factors. I find that fascinating. I guess I would think that's probably one of the fun parts of your your job is the strategy session to figure out how you're going to go in there and get the data that you need to either prove fraud or, you know, prove whatever it is that's needed to the insurance company. Yeah. When, um, I think there's a perception in the industry that, and maybe it's in the smaller, the smaller type businesses where, you know, the, the owner, Joe owner knows that, you know, the work comp, claim is, is fraudulent. He sees Billy out working in the garage and Billy's doing side jobs and Billy's doing all of those things. And they'll want us to maybe hire an investigative firm or make sure that we communicate that to the insurance company, which, which we can, and we do, but the reality is maybe the claim is not big enough that, that, uh, that the insurance company ever, ever ends up hiring an investigative team. I'm wondering what, uh, like what, if, if that business owner maybe wanted to prove that they thought their claim were fraudulent, what, what would you recommend to them that they do on an ongoing basis, either in their company or like, how would they mitigate fraud at the local business to prevent workers' compensation fraud? What would you recommend? I think I can handle that. Um, I think there's a couple of different things that we would recommend starting with the pre-employment process. Having a thorough pre-employment background screening process to make sure that you're looking for red flags on the onset before these individuals become your problem. Um, looking for things like a history of fraud or theft or litigations against prior employers, anything that gives you that general sense of the type of person they are and whether or not they're going to be a good asset for your company. How would a business go about doing that or where would they go? So we can conduct pre-employment screenings. Um, there are several companies that can. One of the things that I think gets missed a lot is other other industry or other um, agencies will look just at the criminal records. And when you do that, you're not looking at civil records. You might be missing any sort of harassment claims, any um, prior, prior civil suits against employers. Um, another thing that we see or another sort of uh, issue with other pre-employment screenings is people will just look at the current state that the individual lives in. Well, if you do that, you're, you're missing all of the prior states they lived in. And if I'm an individual who's gotten in trouble with the law, one of the first things I'm going to do is move somewhere new and try to start over. So it's important that you start with that comprehensive address history and look at all of the states they've lived in the last seven years. And that is something that we're always sure to do um, in our pre-employment screenings here. So a business can hire the R&D agency to do pre-employment screenings. Mm -hmm. you'll, what I'm hearing you say is you're going to go through and you're going to check all 50 states for not only criminal, but civil records, injuries. I mean, how detailed is that report? So 
the, the requirements and the cost for obtaining records varies from one state to the next. So we don't start by just blanket checking all 50 states. We start by running an address history on the individual by their name or social security number. That will also tell us if they've given a fake name. Um, we might be able to find aliases for them using, using that search. Then we look at typically states they've lived in the last seven years and we'll check the records with all of those states. We do have access to databases that can do a national criminal database search as well. So sometimes we'll throw that out there just to see if they were ever charged of a crime in the state that they didn't actually live in. Um, but then we also check the national sex offender registry. Um, we have the ability to check social media or do credit checks depending on the type of position that that employer is hiring for and how in depth they want us to go. Is this something that an employer, do they have access to the same databases that you do or because you're licensed and qualified, you have access to information that the general public doesn't have? Correct. We do have to use, we do have to obtain access to these databases through our license. And we have what's called a permissible use for using each of those, whether it's claims investigations or pre-employment screenings on the behalf of the employer. Um, not just anybody has access to these resources. Okay. That's awesome. Does the does the person who is being screened, are they aware that this is going on? Do they have to sign a release? In the case of a pre-employment screening, they do. They sign a um, disclosure form that, that gives the employer the ability to run a background check on them. And that's, that's actually to protect the employer. Um, but if we were just to do a background check on an individual as part of a claims investigation, we're not getting permission for them. Okay. What, uh, can I ask, like, what something like that, was there a range that that costs for an employer? Yeah, um, typically it's around $130 for a standard pre-employment screening. Again, depending on what states the individual has lived in, the costs vary from one state to the next. So if they live in um, New York, for example, the cost for us to obtain that criminal background might be more expensive, so the cost could increase a little bit. Um, but 130 is the starting rate for our standard standard pre-employment screening. Reasonable, really, for what you get for, I mean, all that stuff. Yeah, well, the other thing, Todd, is uh, when a prospective employee is asked to sign uh, Freedom of Information compliant forms to authorize a background check, a lot of times that's all it's going to take for them to say, oh, by the way, you're going to find this. I think it's always better to start that conversation during that interview process clears the air a little bit. Either they're going to do that, and then when the report comes back, they already know about it, or they're going to try to hope that it doesn't show up, sign the forms, and then keep their fingers crossed until they get the call back from the employer. So uh, it serves a couple of purposes. It protects the employer. It protects us if the employee doesn't get the job and they don't like the report. Um, and the other thing I would add is that the databases we start with will sometimes give us point to criminal actions to begin with. So although it's most likely they're going to have, if criminal or civil, those things are going to be filed in the states and counties that they've lived in. Um, you can certainly get charged with a crime anywhere in the world that you happen to be at the time you commit the crime. So sometimes those databases will point us to another jurisdiction that we wouldn't otherwise check. 
and I'm guessing you're the, the voice of experience here with your 40 years, but uh, when you're doing your claim investigation, your fraud investigation, the first thing you do is pull that, that nationwide screening report. And I'm guessing usually there's something on there that you're now had that business, had that done at the time of initial job application, they wouldn't have the claim and the investigation that they've had today because there's stuff already on there. Right. Yeah, we see that we see that all the time, and uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. But yeah, there's many employers that uh, wish they would have done things right the first time around, and I get it. You're desperate for employees, depending on the job market. They're not knocking your door down for this job. You get a live body come in, and you think you can they can do it. You're gonna hire them and hope for the best, and sometimes it works out, but sometimes you wish you would have done your due diligence. Yeah. In my experience, they've hired a problem and that problem services and takes a lot of time and a lot of resources from a business. And this isn't, this, they're not new at it. They know exactly what they're doing because they've done it in other States and they've done it at other businesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you want to talk about one of your most, maybe most successful fraud investigations at all? Sure. Um, well, one comes to mind. Um, a, a guy was claiming pretty much top to bottom, mostly back, but just about every body part was hurting. Uh, he slipped on the ice uh, outside of work, which started the whole process. Um, I'm guessing no cameras outside of work, no witnesses, nobody saw it. Right, right. Um, but we got kind of lucky on this one in that one of his good friends saw what was going on, saw that he was milking this claim and made a call to the employer didn't give them their name, but they, they took note of his phone number. It was an anonymous tip. You know, those happen quite often. Well, um, that prompted surveillance. I'm not sure if surveillance is going to happen or not, but that prompted it. And along with the information we got, we got this phone number. We identified it as an individual that lived not far from the claimant. And, um, after we'd done some surveillance, I suggested to the adjuster, why don't I go pay him a visit? He wanted to talk on the phone. Maybe he'll talk to me in person. And it actually worked out very well. He, uh, he was really good friends with the guy. But, you know, at some point he says, you know, this is wrong. What he's doing, he's not hurt. He's milking this claim. Um, and so he became our confidential informant. He kept feeding us information on where he was going to be from weekend to weekend and which makes surveillance pretty easy when you know where they're going to go and when they're going to be there. In some cases, this guy was with him. They go to a boat show. He was there with them. Um, so he, he, over a period of probably three or four months, he'd give us information that would help us with surveillance so that we can get him exceeding his restrictions. We got him to some ice races where he's got a car that he would race on ice, doing some mechanical work on the car out there on the ice all day long. And over time, we got quite a bit of activity on him. And we'd supplement that with following him to physical therapy, where he's with his wife, he's going in and out on the crutches, and then the rest of the day, the crutches disappear. His initial demand was almost $300,000. I think they gave him about $55,000 to go away. And that was pretty much in the form of benefits he'd already been paid. Um, they didn't end up pursuing fraud on him. We've had other cases where they have. Um, 
in case we just had one um, a couple of years ago, and it was really a very simple investigation. We had uh, we had a fair amount of film of this guy just being normal, and they scheduled him for an independent medical exam, an IME, and those happen fairly often. It's an independent doctor that's going to evaluate the claimant. We knew this guy was ultra paranoid. Uh, you can just tell by his, his social media posts. Uh, he was one of these end of the world guys. He'd have on the side of his truck, he had all kinds of assault rifles, images, <laughs> you know, on his window. Uh, so he, he was kind of a, a character you don't want to really follow too much if you don't have to. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. which was probably very comforting to the investigator following him. <laughs> right. So the IME was actually in a different town. Uh, we had an investigator set up at his house to film him coming out to the truck, acting normal, doing a little bit of work around the house, and then taking off, and we didn't follow him. We had another investigator waiting at the IME. Uh, he could just barely drag his way in and out of that appointment uh, with such an exaggerated limp. And again, when he left there, we didn't follow him, but we had the investigator set up at his home. He got home. Um, he was acting normal again, and really that Exaggerated pain behavior was all it took, uh, not only to deny the claim and to get out of paying him future benefits, but to report it to the local county attorney that got involved and charged him with insurance fraud, and they got a conviction out of it. So it doesn't have to be a super egregious thing. It really depends on, you know, in part getting a county attorney that's willing to push the case. And so from that aspect, you probably have a better chance of pursuing a, a fraud case in a smaller county where there's not a whole lot of violent crime uh, that they're also dealing with. But uh, those are just a couple of examples. We, we see fraud cases fairly often, um, but typically you've got to get through the work comp process, Department of Labor and Industry and all that process. And if they think they have a good case, uh, most states have a commerce department that have an internal fraud division within it that will kind of work with you to build a case or work with the adjuster or the insurance carrier to build a case and then to hand it off to a county attorney to prosecute in district court. So this is, that was interesting to me. The first time that I talked with you, I didn't realize that those were two separate processes. So when you investigate the injured worker and you think they're committing fraud and you take that data to the insurance company and say, Hey, we think this guy is being fraudulent. You're paying claims that's a whole separate process of what they have to do to maybe stop paying benefits or pay reduced benefits versus filing. It'd be a criminal, a criminal right. injured worker trying to commit workers' compensation fraud, which in the industry, I get notifications all the time and it's fines and jail time. I mean, over simple things. I mean, $5,000 can land you a couple of years in jail, but they take fraud very yeah. seriously. Right. Yeah, so you're right. It, uh, the whole work comps um, claim is handled through Department of Labor and Industry um, hearings at Office of Administrative Hearings. So that's a, you know, a whole different jurisdiction. And so if we get some good findings like that, chances are the insurance company, if they've accepted the claim, now they're going to file a notice of intent to discontinue. They're going to stop paying benefits. That'll start the process of a hearing getting scheduled. And then... Um, you know, if our evidence is, is strong enough at that point, the judge is going to side with the insurance carrier, 
stop the claim. They may appeal it. There may be some appeals going on at that same level. But once that's done, if the carrier wants to pursue fraud charges, it's going to have to be in district court. It's a regular criminal proceeding then. That simply amazes me. I mean, here's a person trying to not only defraud the insurance company, but then to go out and hire an attorney to defend their fraudulent position. I mean, it's, it's a waste of time and resources for everybody. Yeah. Well, I think there's a general perception that insurance companies have all this money. They're not even going to miss it. People can do these mental gymnastics to figure out why this is okay for me to do this. And it, you know, it does kind of hurt sometimes when I do this. So, you know, the, the sad thing here is the business businesses end up paying hundred percent of this. I mean, they pay all the work comp, they pay all hundred percent of the work comp premium into the system, whether it's fraudulent or not fraudulent. And I actually, I talked to, uh, I talked to a gentleman the other day who runs a fraud department at an insurance company. And what was enlightening from him is he said back in the nineties, there was more, uh, the dollar amount for fraud caused by people is greater than what it is today. He says, we still have a soup, the, the highest number of fraud claims come from workers faking injuries, but there's a whole new, uh, of, uh, a whole new set of fraud from providers doing fake billing, fake billing on Sundays, fake billing on holidays, ramping up claims, you know, putting bills through that never even happened. And that's a whole separate type of, you know, fraud investigation. And they're using a lot of technology to look at that on maybe even a clinic or localized state level on why one claim with a certain diagnosis code has all these tests that, you know, provider A and it doesn't have the same number of tests at provider B and they're tracking all that. And it's, it was kind of fascinating to talk to him on how that he's seen that change in the industry over the last decade or two. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've been hired to watch uh, chiropractor offices that are submitting claim after claim after claim and um, just to document how many people are coming and going and who they are. Um, in some cases, just to go into the waiting room, just to get a, a shot of the check-in sheet. Um, but yeah, we see that both with providers and also with employers uh, fabricating the numbers either to keep their their claims rates down um, or if, if it's a small business and if it's a family member that allegedly gets hurt to file a claim and kind of split the proceeds. So there's all kinds of ways to try to scam the system, but you always run that risk that it's going to come back and haunt you. I guess it goes back to, if you see something, say something, right? Be vocal, advocate for your position. If you think there's fraud, say there's fraud and let somebody know. Yeah. And I think, like you said, the employers pay the price, but also there's a trickle down effect. Any customers that are buying from that manufacturer are going to have to pay a little bit more because those costs have to get absorbed somewhere. Employees at that facility um, aren't going to get the raises they want, maybe the bonus that they were hoping for because that money is gone. So it's not really a victimless crime, although it may seem that way at the time you're doing it. No. And as a guy that's all in on workers' compensation, you know, that fraudulent claim can swing an experience mod. I mean, these things don't, they don't solve themselves in 30, 60 or 90 days. I mean, they have a tail on them. That's a couple years long. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm guessing your claims and your investigations, that's a, maybe a multi-year process. And to have an employer have, I don't know if you're familiar with mods, but they basically are like a number that you take the premium times 
So if a client was good and they had a mod of 0.9 and you have a $50,000 premium, a $50,000 premium times 0.9 makes it $45,000 in the employer's favor. Well, if they've got fraudulent claims and or other claims and that number is no longer nine, it's a 1.5. Well, 50,000 times 1.5 gets you 75,000. And that employer's overpaying $30,000 a year because of fraud. Yeah. And that's, that's a direct cost to the business that limits what they can do within their company for what you said, raises, expenses, retention, acquisitions, growth, equipment. I mean, it has a negative effect all the way around. Yeah, I think that's just the start of the cost. Uh, on top of that, they've got a position that needs to be filled. They can't really replace the guy because he may be coming back. Mm-hmm. So they got to pay people overtime to fill those slots. Um, not to mention all the time and energy it takes for that person inside the company to deal with those claims. You're talking about the hidden costs there. It's better not to have a claim, right? Maybe do a pre-screening offer up front, pay the $139, make sure you hear <laughs> your next problem. Uh, your business will run better and it's a win-win for everybody around, right? I would agree. Mm-hmm. I know we're about out of time here. Is there anything else you guys want to want to talk about or want to share today? Um, well, you know, we talked about work comp. That's one of the things that we do. We, we do uh, quite a bit. I mean, like I said, we don't do the cheating spouses, but our clients are insurance companies, law firms, and corporations primarily. And so whether it's non-compete agreements, criminal defense investigations, scene investigations, witness interviews, asset searches. Um, we've got a licensed non-unmanned uh, uh, aircraft pilot here. With We've got multiple drones. So we do drone work too. That's kind of one of the new areas that we've gotten into. Sometimes that's claims we can help in that. Sometimes it has to do with construction projects and be able to document changes or what's going on. Um, but there's a lot of different things that we do. I think we can be a good resource for your listeners, whether they've got a claim or whether there are other things going on internally. Um, just because of our resources and we kind of have a tendency to think outside the box, we can help our clients with a variety of different things. And that's really one of the things I've always loved about this job is we can help people out. Um, and sometimes we'll take private party cases just for that reason. You know, um, I lost lost track of this adopted uh, nephew. You know, we just had one of those where we tracked the gal down. So, you know, sometimes you can help people out. It's not all about the money. Sometimes it's just about doing something good for somebody. And that's really the one of the things that Bree and I really love about this, this business is uh, we can help people. That's why I'm in this business too, to help people. Yeah make a difference, do the right thing. And I think, I think we owe it. We owe it to the industry to be better, to talk about these things, to help educate. Um, I don't think a lot of people know what goes on in a workers' compensation investigation or what you guys do. And I really appreciate coming out today and just kind of sharing some of that with our listeners here. And uh, tell me again, how many, you're in multi-states. Is that, is that true? Which yep. State- yep. We're in Minnesota, Wisconsin, North and South Dakota, and Iowa. Okay. And if an employer wants a pre-screening, are you able to do those for any employer anywhere in the country? Yes. Yep. Wonderful. Well, it has been great talking to you two today. I've got some fun questions that I'll ask here that uh, they're just kind of fun things, but it, it's been great having you on. It's been great meeting both of you. I, 
as a guy that owns a family business himself, as a third generation, I'm thrilled to see the second generation. And I think that you've got a bright future ahead of you. And uh, there's going to be a lot of neat things coming from your agency. And I look forward to seeing what those are. Well, thank you. We're excited too. All right. So question for both of you here, just because I'm, I'm truly interested. I like to read books. I read something all the time. What are you guys reading right now? I am reading a book called A Lost Boy Found. And I don't remember who the author is, but um, I'm about a third of the way in and it is very good so far. I like a lot lot of um, the mysteries, like Gone Girl, um, Luckiest Girl Alive, kind of the the, um, mystery thriller type books. How about you, Don? Uh, you know, I tend to read books when I go on vacation, but otherwise, this is the kind of stuff I read. PI <laughs> Magazine. Issue. I've never heard of that magazine until today. <laughs> All right. And then tell me what's one thing you spend more money on than you should? Golf. Golf. I can see that with all the golf balls and the golf clubs and the golf trips. Someday, maybe when I'm up in Minnesota, we'll play golf together. Yeah, I'd, be, I'd love to do that. Uh, I play a lot of hockey, too, but I'm a goalie, so I always play for free. So uh, it's pretty much just the golf. And I'm a hockey fan, too, so when there's uh, live sporting events, I'm either at the Wild Games or I like going to Twins Games as well. We've got tickets for both of those. But uh, other than that, golf is kind of my passion. That's where a lot of my time and energy goes when I'm not working. For me, I would say breweries and fun, fun expenses. I live in Minneapolis. We've got tons of breweries and good restaurants. And pre-COVID, we had a lot of fun concerts. And I would prefer to spend my money doing those fun things with with friends and family. Well, I think I would get along with both of you because I like (laughs) and I like food. And there's nothing better than a live concert up in Minneapolis. Right. And uh, yeah. Look forward to post-COVID when we can do those things together. Me too. All right, last thing here. Piece of advice you want to give the world. I would just say to be kind to everyone because you never know the battles someone's going through. Good advice. Yep. Um, Bree's smart. <laughs> She's a smart person. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd have to go with something along those lines. Uh you know, do something you enjoy doing, um, you know, whether it's uh, on your spare time or I think I'm blessed to be able to do something I love doing. I love teaching the guys that come in here to do what they do. I love providing good results for our clients. And it's something I can get up every day and be excited to, to go do. And now I've got a Bree. I've got two of my daughters working here now. My sister Sheila has been with me since we started a business in 91. So it's, it's a family, family deal. And so I would say besides, you know, being true to yourself, um, treat people well, those things that Bree brought up, if you can do something that you love doing, it's, it's a, it's a bonus every day. Agreed. And maybe play more golf. <laughs> yeah. Right, two birds, one stone. And more free time now, right? All right. So before we wrap up, uh, we're going to include all of the contact information for your business and how to get a hold of you in the podcast details. But if people want to find you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? 
Well, if you Google Minnesota Private Investigator, we should come up pretty much on top. Otherwise, www.rdagency.com is our website. It's involved in a, a redo right now. Bree's updating it um, as we speak. Um, but yeah, we're easy enough to find. And find us on um, LinkedIn. Yeah, I think we gave you our LinkedIn information. Yep, we'll post that too. Awesome. Well, I want to thank both of you again for your time today and the education. And uh, listeners, I hope you found this information helpful in your endeavor to run your business and create a safe work environment and reduce fraud. Be well, everybody.